This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. It had been an annual tradition at a school in the U.S. for students to participate in a 10-day hiking trip. They prepared for the trip months before and were eagerly anticipating the adventure, but they were not prepared for the unexpected turn of events. This is Apple for the Teacher, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Anna Thomas. Today's episode is called Snow Kids. The students went on a snow trip. What happened? There were six university friends who went on a trout fishing trip in the Cherokee National Forest, which extends through the U.S. states of Tennessee and North Carolina. They had years of hunting, fishing and camping experience, but this trip would be unlike any others they had been on. One of the men said, We knew it was going to snow, but we didn't think it would be that much. We had good equipment and four-wheel drives, but when I woke up the first morning and stepped out of the back of my truck into crotch-deep snow, I knew the fishing wasn't going to be very good. We were about three miles above double camp. At first we tried to get out of there in our trucks. It took three and a half hours to go about 250 yards. We realised it was too much for us, so we got back inside and stayed warm. They stayed inside their vehicles until the next morning. Then they trudged back to their base camp in four and a half foot drifts and collected more food, tools and firewood. They started a fire and also put up a clothesline which was used to dry out their wet and frozen clothing. We knew the main things we had to do were to stay together and keep positive. Some of the guys were pretty nervous. We started making jokes to keep up morale. Later that afternoon they heard screams nearby and made slow progress through the snow in the direction of the screams and they found a boy and a girl. The fishermen said they were terrified and covered with snow but they sure were glad to see us. They were in shock and in the first stages of frostbite. We put them into dry clothes and got them to the fire. The boy and girl told them that they were part of a school group on a camping trip in the forest but they got lost in the blizzard. It was getting close to nightfall so they bedded the students with them in their vehicle, but thankfully they didn't have to spend the night there as they suddenly saw some bright lights coming towards them. It was the National Guard. So the eight of them were taken to an emergency centre and then the fishermen helped the army officials to look over maps of the area and suggested where they should look for the rest of the school group. The school group were from the Cranbrook Kingswood Upper School in Detroit, Michigan, in the US. The year was 1993, and the trip to the Great Smoky Mountains National Park was part of an annual trek, which had been a tradition at the school for 20 years. The younger students dreamt of the day that they would participate in the annual school trek. This particular year, there were 117 students and teachers on the trip. They had trained for months before, doing endurance running and learning survival skills. After their buses arrived at the park, 
they had been split up into groups of about eight or ten. What lay ahead of them was ten days of hiking, camping and survival training. They were then due to return back to base camp. The lead up to the trip had the students under no illusion that the hike would be easy, but they had trained for it and they felt prepared. After splitting into their groups, they headed off. A student named Danielle Swank was part of one group, and over the first few days, the hiking was difficult, but they were in good spirits. The weather had been great, but then a few days in, it started snowing. Danielle described what it was like. It was really surprising how quickly the snow stuck to the ground. The snow just continued forever, it seemed. Danielle suffered from asthma and on the first day had a minor asthma attack, but she wasn't too concerned. But after it started snowing, the temperature dropped and she had another, more severe attack, forcing one of the students to carry her backpack. But it was that night when a snowstorm really picked up, causing their tarpaulin cover to collapse from the weight of the snow. When they woke up the next morning, they were shivering, but two members of the group were particularly affected by the conditions and were crying uncontrollably. The snow was just not easing up, so they decided to head back down the mountain for help. Danielle didn't want to have more issues with her asthma, so she progressed slowly and stayed at the back of the group. Just ahead of her was one of the teachers, James Woodruff. He kept close with Danielle in case she had more asthma difficulties. But their slow pace resulted in the rest of the group getting further and further ahead, and the heavy snow covered their tracks. Danielle and James eventually lost the rest of the group. As the day wore on, they couldn't continue in the bad conditions and decided to put up their tarpaulin. They were cold and exhausted and tried to get off their wet clothes. But Danielle couldn't get her pants off, and one boot had frozen so much she just couldn't get it off. James had the same problem and was forced to sleep with both boots on. Danielle said, Our feet were basically packed in ice. They somehow managed to make it through the night, but then Danielle couldn't get her other boot back on, meaning there was no way that she was going to be able to continue hiking back. So James decided to go ahead and try to find the others. He left his food and sleeping bag, so Danielle had some extra warmth. But by nightfall, he hadn't returned, and the grim situation began to hit her. She started crying and saying prayers. She then woke up the next morning with a very dry mouth and ate some snow for hydration. Then, at about 3pm that afternoon, she heard a helicopter and started waving her arms furiously. Finally, help had arrived. The Black Hawk helicopter had nowhere to land, so a rescuer was hoisted down to her. She was very weak and had covered herself in a tarpaulin. He noticed that she was also lying in a puddle of urine and diarrhea. Due to her state of hypothermia and dehydration, it had been estimated that she would have only had 30 minutes left to live if she hadn't been found. She was then hoisted into the helicopter and laid between two men to give her warmth. After Danielle and James fell behind, the rest of their group continued on, trying their best to return back to base camp. 
Two other students in the group were Marcy Paisley and Mark Penske. Marcy was an 18-year-old senior and was helping guide the group. She had gone on the annual trip as a sophomore and then became trained in CPR and first aid. She felt ready to tackle the trek again, but neither she nor the rest of the group expected the severe blizzard that had descended on the park. The National Park Service had warned the school group of the storm approaching and recommended that they cancel their hike. However, they decided to continue. Marcy said, It was snowing, but we had no idea it would snow so much. We just stayed on the trail and thought it would stop. It probably snowed three feet. Then, as the storm continued, Marcy said, You couldn't see five feet in front of your face. We woke up in the morning with a few feet of snow on the group and started heading back down the mountain. Snow was up to our waists in some places. It was very hard to get through. There were a few wet stream crossings and people's boots were freezing. Marcy had been in charge of her group and she recalled how some of the students were starting to freak out. She said, but I realised I couldn't. I had to tell them they'd live. Her training had taught her just to keep going and they continued on until nightfall. The next morning, they weren't able to get their boots back on as they had frozen solid, but they wrapped their feet in whatever they could and kept going. But it was only a matter of time before some of the students started suffering from hypothermia and frostbite and they simply could not continue. Marcy and Mark were in the best condition out of everyone and decided to keep going for help. We realised that Mark and I were the only ones physically able to get there. It was our only hope. But they left behind their backpacks, which had food, clothing and their sleeping bags. Marcy said, We made sure they were okay. I told them all they had to do is to keep warm, and they could do that by body heat. They eventually found a road, and that's when they came across the group of fishermen. Then we smelled fire. It was some fishermen and they fed us and got us warm and gave us dry clothing. They were very nice. Then the National Guardsmen came. After finally being rescued by helicopter, they pondered the risk they had taken when leaving the rest of their group. Marcy said, We just knew we had to get help. I knew I had to maintain my spirits because some spirits were starting to drop. They were saying we weren't going to make it and I knew I had to say, no, we're going to make it. I had hope. I knew we had to make it. I proved my strength, I guess. One of the coordinators of the rescue operation stated what he thought about Marcy and Mark leaving the group. He said, I feel that the two kids who walked out and found the fishermen saved the lives of the rest of the group. So now in safety, Marcy told the rescuers about Danielle and James, explaining how they got separated. We lost them somehow. We waited an hour or two and then went ahead. And here was the moment when James was found. A rescuer said, We spotted him from the helicopter. He was unconscious. The doctors worried about his feet. He was in a serious condition when taken to the hospital. They started hoisting James up into the helicopter, but as he got near, he passed out and his arms went limp and he started to slip from the strap. 
All of us grabbed him at one time. We were scared to let go. He was so skinny, he started to slip out of his clothes. A rescuer in the helicopter grabbed the waistband on his pants and managed to haul him into the copter. His feet were frozen into blocks of ice, which they were not able to remove. And I have seen a video of him on a hospital stretcher, and you can see clearly the large blocks of ice on his feet. While some of the school group had to be rescued, some were able to make it out themselves, and many were totally oblivious to the magnitude of the snowstorm and the extensive search and rescue effort that was underway. One of the students' mother got a phone call from her son. She said, I'm crying, and he says, what's the matter, mum? This provides a good indication of just how unaware they were at the severity of the situation. The school group had been unaware that a dozen helicopters had been searching for them from the Tennessee and North Carolina National Guard and even a unit of the Army's 101st Air Assault Division. They didn't have cell phones or walkie-talkies, which would have been useless anyway due to the mountainous terrain. They had been told by park rangers that bad weather was coming and that they should stay at low altitudes. However, they headed up the mountain, which, as we can see, was a mistake. But somehow, everyone managed to make it out alive and relatively unscathed. The teacher, James, would eventually recover, as did Danielle, although she had to have five toes amputated. And the school group were not the only people to be rescued, as there had been many other hikers in the park who also had to be rescued. The storm would go on to be referred to as the storm of the century. It blasted the east coast of the US, causing tornadoes in Florida and a blizzard that stretched from Alabama to Canada. About 230 people lost their lives. The storm began on the 12th of March, 1993, lasting for three days. It formed over the Gulf of Mexico and was notable for its massive size and intensity. Many parts of the US recorded their coldest temperatures on record and electricity was lost to 10 million households. It was estimated that 26 states and 40% of the population experienced the effects of the storm. The highest snowfall was recorded in North Carolina, which was 56 inches. The storm marked a milestone in US weather forecasting, in that it had been the first time that the National Weather Service had been able to predict how severe the storm would be five days before it hit. Warnings were then issued and several states declared a state of emergency even before it started to snow. As already mentioned, some of the school group had made it out of the blizzard unaware of the seriousness of the storm or the rescue operation. These were the students who came out early from the storm, so the situation hadn't yet got as critical as it would become. The groups had been spread out around the park, not coming into contact with one another. So, when their buses returned back to school, they were greeted by excited relatives, but also the clicking of press cameras. 
and they had also noticed that the buses had been followed by the press back from the camp. People greeted them with signs and balloons, and they were quite surprised by the welcome. One boy's sister had flown in from Los Angeles. He said that a helicopter had dropped a yellow streamer to them, which had a message offering them help, but they waved them off. Then it returned, and they were actually ordered to come with them. Here is some audio of a group when they returned back to school and to their waiting families. During that time, of course, I was like, you know, this is hell. I'm so scared. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what to do. But it was just an experience that I'll never forget. It was frightening, but we just kind of were trying to like block the whole thing out. I mean, we, we didn't eat anything. We just lay there. We drank a little bit. And we went outside, and the snow was three feet deep. Oh, my God. You heard it. We were listening for it for about 10 minutes. And all of a sudden, I saw the, the rotors going around and around. And I'm like, oh, you guys, there it is. I'm pointing. They're like, where, where? And, um, and, and I'm like, right there. So, so we saw it. And we were, I felt so ridiculous. Because we were all out in our socks, standing on the snow, jumping up and down, waving anything colored. Like, we waved our sleeping bags. We waved all this stuff. And it was, it was just unbelievable. Yes, yes, it hasn't deterred me whatsoever. This is, we figured this is about as worse as it can get, and since we, uh, we've come out of it A-OK, -okay, we're pretty confident. So my thoughts are that these students were very, very fortunate to escape this storm, given that it turned out to be the storm of the century. And the one thing that I found unbelievable was that they hadn't actually taken tents. I kept hearing this reference to tarpaulins, and they just spread them over a rope to make a shelter. Are you kidding? For one night, maybe, but for 10 days? Even in the heat of summer here in Australia, people sleep in tents when camping. It was meant to be a survival camp. So I guess sleeping out in the open was part of the experience. But really? Maybe they were saving having to carry the extra weight of tents. I think also. This was just the way it was 25 years ago, that the safety and well-being of students wasn't like it is today. The sheer cold they would have experienced is just beyond my comprehension. For me, I have mostly lived in warm parts of Australia, and where I live at the moment, the coldest that it gets in winter is about 20 degrees Celsius. And it sometimes might get a few degrees below this, but it's pretty ideal for winter. So what happened to the people in this story would be my absolute worst case scenario. I don't handle the cold very well at all. And even in our 20 degrees in winter, I complain about the cold and everyone knows how cold I get. And people always joke that I just need to put on some more fat for insulation. So for me to be lost in a snowstorm, I really think that I wouldn't make it out alive. And I really have to question the decision to go ahead with the hike. I know they didn't know how severe the storm would be, but they had been warned. So if it was me, I would have erred on the side of caution, although it's probably easy for me to say now in hindsight. But I think if there are school kids involved, you just have to be more cautious than you would be if you were by yourself. But it's hard because everyone had been so looking forward to the trip. It was a school tradition. 
So to pull the plug would have been a difficult decision, but the safety of children has to come first. I don't know if it's just me, but I'm just very cautious with everything I do. I'm not a risk taker. So for me, I would have said, no, we're not going. But now my podcast is coming to 100 episodes and I have already covered stories about students losing their lives on school trips. And I have also covered other stories about snowstorms. In episode 11 called Boot Camp, a school group went on a camp and a long hike in 35 degrees Celsius temperatures. Those teachers in charge could have cancelled the hike, but they went ahead and a boy ended up losing his life. In episode 17, Going, Going, Gone, a school group went on a hike through a park and one girl went missing. She was never found and it's now been 25 years later. The kids were high school kids and they had separated into small groups, but they didn't have adults supervising them. In episode 19, Damn It, another school group went on a camp and a boy drowned in a dam. In episode 61, Aladdin's Cave, a school group hikes through an underground cave and then heavy rain floods the cave, killing some of the students. Now it had been raining beforehand and they noticed that the water level was up a little bit, so they could have stopped and not continued, but they kept going. In episode 67, Eye of the Storm, there was a snowstorm and a group of students were stranded in their school bus and some of them ended up dying. In episode 81, The Black Forest, a school group from the UK went to Germany and went on a hike and some were killed during a snowstorm. Again, they were warned, but the teacher kept going. So in some of these tragedies, the teachers and the adults in charge had failed to heed warnings about continuing on with their planned hikes. So those children did not have to die. Also, going for a hike in 35 degree over a number of days just seems ludicrous to me. They could have stopped at any point and they should have. This was another example of a school, 30-year tradition, of an annual school hike. But tradition should not override common sense and the safety of children. Those adults should have pulled the plug. And outlining all of these episodes, I didn't realise that I had covered so many school tragedies. I actually found a comprehensive document which lists school tragedies, and I couldn't believe how many there have been. And if I wanted to, I could just focus my podcast completely on these types of stories. So no doubt I will cover more in the future. This story also got me thinking about what to do if you are ever in a snowstorm. What should you do to increase your chances for survival? So I did some research and here are some tips. Shelter is important as blowing winds can cause the wind chill to reduce your core body temperature. I read that it's better to stay inside a car rather than to walk to get help. A car is much more easier to spot rather than a person walking and the windows should also be opened a small amount to allow for the circulation of fresh air. Dangerous exhaust fumes, including carbon monoxide, can build up very quickly. It is also suggested that you actually try to dig a snow cave 
as the deep snow can act as an insulation from the wind and cold temperatures. If you don't have the right conditions for building a snow cave, you can just also dig a trench in the snow and cover it with a tarp. This does provide as much shelter as a snow cave, but it's better than being completely exposed to the wind and snow. Now, making a snow cave does appear to be a bit fanciful and something that Hollywood would dream up because, I mean, who's going to have the necessary tools? And if you're by yourself, you're not going to be able to dig yourself a really flash snow cave. So, yeah, I think more more a case of trying to dig a hole in the ground somewhere. You will recall that one of the students ate snow. Well, actually, it is recommended that you don't do this as your body must heat the ice in order to melt it into water. So you would actually lose heat. So they say to melt it first before drinking it. For example, use a heating source or indirect body heat like a canteen inside your coat but not directly next to your skin. And they also suggest that you don't waste energy such as screaming for help because the winds mean that people won't be able to hear you anyway. And also try to make a fire. Now this seems to be totally ridiculous in a snowstorm, but matches are probably the least helpful way to start a fire because once they get wet, they're useless. A flint and steel striker kit is a much better option. You might think that dry wood would be hard to find, but the trick is to look for dead wood. Find a dead tree or tree trunk that's fallen to the ground but is propped up by rocks or other trees beneath it. Take off the outermost layers of bark or wetness and you will find that the wood pulp inside is usually dry enough to burn. Now I think that is a very good tip. And if someone has hypothermia, here is what you shouldn't do. Do not rewarm the person too quickly, such as with a heating lamp or hot bath. Don't attempt to warm the hands, arms, feet or legs. Heating or massaging the limbs and extremities of someone in this condition can cause stress for the heart and lungs. And I found this really interesting because this would be totally against what I would do. You know when you're cold and you just, you know, rub your hands together to get warm? So I found that very interesting. And don't give the person alcohol or cigarettes. Alcohol hinders the rewarming process and tobacco products interfere with circulation that is needed for rewarming. So these are just a few tips and let's hope that we never have to use them. So this story ended up very well, unlike some of the other episodes that I have done in regards to snowstorms, so they were very, very fortunate. Now, just before we finish this episode, I'd like to give you an update on the Australian case of the three sisters who had been sexually abused by their female principal. If you are not familiar with this case, I suggest that you go back and listen to episode 34 called Kiss of Judas, and then episode 71, which updated the case. So there have been a few developments since then, which I will now outline. But first, let's review what's happened so far. The story took place in Australia. Three sisters 
Nicole, Dassey and Ellie grew up in an ultra-Orthodox Jewish community and attended a Jewish school. Their high school principal started making sexual advances towards them. The girls kept the abuse secret, even from each other, until Dassey finally had the courage to speak out. When the police began investigating, it turned out that there were many more victims. When the school found out, they paid for a one-way ticket to Israel for the principal instead of calling the police. The police charged her with 74 abuse charges and requested her extradition from Israel back to Australia. She was taken into custody in Israel and what has followed is years of legal proceedings which has delayed the extradition. Her lawyers argued that she suffered from mental illness and was unfit to attend extradition hearings. She was allowed to be free but attend psychiatric assessments periodically. But the sisters hired private investigators who took photographs and video of the principal seemingly living a normal life. With this evidence, she was arrested again. But more years have passed and the court proceedings have continued on and on with more delays. As of early this year, 2021, there had been more than 70 hearings, with the whole process being described as a circus. But the court finally ruled that she had been faking mental illness and was fit to stand trial and therefore to be extradited back to Australia. So now we pick up where we left off. So, late last year in December 2020, court date number 74 went ahead, where her lawyers appealed against the extradition. They argued again that the abuse was consensual and that she wouldn't get a fair trial in Australia. Then a few weeks later, the sisters received the outcome of the appeal. The judge announced that the appeal was denied and that she would now be extradited back to Australia. Well, we cannot even imagine how overjoyed the sisters must have been. The whole saga had been going on for nine years, and finally she would be returning to face justice. She had exhausted all her appeals, there would be no more avenues to pursue, so all the years of stalling had finally come to an end. So after this decision was made, she was required to be returned to Australia within 60 days. So I'm watching the TV here in Australia when I see the breaking news that she was on a plane back to Australia. And that plane finally arrived and she was finally on Australian soil again. The first part of the process was for her to appear via video link at the police station with the magistrate's court for a file hearing. During the video link, she sat motionless, wearing a white head covering, looking down and cradling her head in her arms. She failed to respond when asked if she could see and hear the court. This is also how she appeared in the court hearings in Israel, trying to make herself look like this frail, mentally ill woman. Throughout all the years, she sat motionless, not speaking when called on, and it was argued over and over by her lawyers that she was mentally ill. This argument was used to good effect to delay the court process and postpone hearings due to her so-called illness. But in the end, the courts ruled 
that she had been faking mental illness. So these tenacious sisters finally achieved the first huge victory in their fight for justice. But they know this is not the end of the matter, and bringing her to trial will no doubt continue on for years to come. So when the woman fled to Israel in 2008, that makes 12 years of wasted time. If she hadn't fled, she would probably be in jail right now. I've been following this story and it's just the twists and the turns and the delays has just been so infuriating and I'm not even involved. For the sisters, I just cannot imagine how this has been for them. I just admire the three girls so much. So finally, she's here and now we see what happens. And of course, I will continue to follow this case and continue to provide updates. But fantastic news. And now let's preview the next episode. It's called Family Feud. A crime is committed, but who done it? And to end this episode, I will leave you with this quote. Safety isn't expensive, it's priceless. Bye for now and remember to be a good apple.